welcome to your daily game face, my daily game face, and I am running late. What, what's wrong with the seat now? My seat doesn't look weird. Do I look weird? No. Okay. I felt like the seat was wonky. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you going? Did you feel that word coming? I did. I did. <sighs> that was a first. Yeah, second time today. <laughs> no, the first one came out without being on air. Yeah. <laughs> I have, it, it's an F-bomb morning. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're already two in. <laughs> Not on air. <laughs> well, one and a half. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was a one and a quarter because it only went. <laughs> right. Yep. I don't swear, Lou. You should know that. Come on now. So I'm late. Why am I late? Tell you can swear why. here. What? You can swear here. I, no, I'm not going to swear that. Okay. I don't swear. That's not, that's a potty mouth naughty word. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. <sighs> <laughs> Why am I late this morning? Because of the Dunkin' Donuts line. 11. You're, how long? 11 minutes in the line. And there were only three cars in front of me. I can only imagine that the person in front of me, uh, I always have these storylines in my head. That ordered for the whole office. Yeah. 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 And I couldn't see around the corner other than the back end of the car, but I imagined that it was either, well, school, it's school break week here in mm. Massachusetts, unlike New Hampshire. So I'm thinking either they got like, they had a big party. So they got a hundred million donuts for all the kids that slept over or it's for the office. But, See, th this may be a tell on my mental health, but when that <laughs> happens, everyone else in line should get out and roll that car. <laughs> roll it. <laughs> if you have more, if you're doing more than three people, park the car and get out. Well, remember back in the day. Now, here's a mental health issue for me. <laughs> <laughs> remember back in the day when when it was very clearly stated on all the signs on all drive throughs like no more than X amount of yeah. like you couldn't order more than four drinks or four. Like it was very specific. And if you had to, you had to come in, especially that during clearly has gone right out the window, especially during the morning commute. I mean, you gotta, oh, yeah. gotta keep that moving. Well, if, so it's funny. I mean, not that anyone really cares about this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So, so on mornings like today, cause I come in at this time of day, I, don't hit the traffic at the at the Dunkin' Donuts drive through like I normally would because it's, you know, later in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so usually there's like one car in front of me. And it's usually pretty fast for the most part, except for today. <laughs> and then if I go, though, at tomorrow morning, which is my early day on Thursdays, I hit the Dunkin' Donuts drive through around 635. Yeah, forget it. That line is like the death march yep. because... <laughs> It's like, what, where are you all going? Like, I'm the only person in my mind that I have to be somewhere. Because <laughs> I have a meeting, be at it, 10 to 7. And what are you all doing? Because there's no way anyone's going to work that early, except for, you know, electricians, plumbers, HVAC people, and construction people. Mm -hmm. I did Dunkin' Donuts uh, thing this morning, too. Oh, see? New, new construction on a place I stop occasionally. So it's a new building. It had been closed for a little bit. Yes. And they had the pay window and the pickup window. But they didn't explain that during the drive-through, and I kind of saw it. So I saw someone stop at "quote unquote" the pay window. But when I was there, no one was there. Oh, that's weird. And so I just sat there for a while, and nobody showed up. Oh. And then nobody showed up. Nobody showed up, and I moved to the pickup window. And and they brought me the stuff, but there were like three Dunkin' Donut employees going to register is back at that window. But there are three cars behind me. I can't back up. Okay, what do you want me to do? Uh. Just take the card and walk up there and do the transaction. But it's like they kept going the cash registers back there. I, was, I can't That's back up. It's a drive-thru. I just can't. Yeah. And by the way, if that's yeah. where the register is, put somebody on the register. Mm. I have so many things I could say about, yeah. What? The drive, no, about drive-thrus oh, yeah. and like things. I was up, I mean, I digress, but not really. So there's, if you go up north towards the White Mountains, there is one stop off that has a Burger King at it. I won't say which one it is, but everyone that knows it goes up that far, probably no. You eat so at Burger King? It's what? You eat at Burger King? I don't eat at Burger okay. King, but I do get coffee there oh, and okay. I do get Diet Coke. So Fair enough. Right? Yeah. And so, and you can ask anyone in my life, I don't eat at those places. I just buy beverage. Mm -hmm. So, um, true story. So anyway, so 
on multiple occasions in the past year, <clears throat> here it goes, this room, here, my nose and everything's going. I, I know um, about the room. It's kind of become a funny, <laughs> become a funny thing that we we go into the drive-thru to go there. And it and now it's just like a joke because it will be, there'd be no one in the parking lot, but there'll be one car. And it's got to be the one worker that's there. Yeah. So the first time we went through to have this happen, we went through and we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And, and someone finally comes in and, and to the microphone and says, um, we don't have anyway, we don't have hamburgers, we don't have chicken, we don't have like they went down the line and I said, Do you have Diet Coke? And they were like, Our machine's broken. So okay, so we, we were So just, why is the door right? open? So right. <laughs> so then we kind of laughed and we we're like, yeah. Okay, I guess we're moving along. So the next time we came through, you know, we figured, oh, it's just one of those anomalies. They only had chicken nuggets. Uh-huh. And they had Diet Coke, but I wasn't eating, but we had people with us in the car. And so kids, and so we were like, fine, we'll get them chicken nuggets. That's fine. God knows how long they've been there, whatever. And then like the third time, we now this is over a span of like several months that we've been yep. at least hitting this place. And then the third time we come in, <laughs> this poor guy, he he comes out the back door. We're sitting at the drive-thru. He comes out the back door. He looks at us. He, and it's now like 11 in the morning. He looks at us and says, yeah, we're probably not going to open till like three or four. I'm the only one here and I can't do it all. So yeah, I'm not giving you anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I just wanted a Diet Coke. He's like, yeah, no. They, that was a no. They I'm do thinking, that. Wow, that business, that, yeah. that, that Burger King is going to go right down. Yeah. The they, crapper. they do that a lot though. in a lot of these places where there's one person on. And it's like, I don't know how that works. Well, and that was the thing. I'm thinking, first of all, one person on, I mean, it's out in the middle of East Boondock, so it doesn't matter, but I guess, because like how Not during ski in? season. Well, yeah. Nice. And this is, yeah. this was a high season. Yeah. And I'm thinking, and it's a, it's a last stop before you hit the mountains. And by the way, during the summer, the White Mountains aren't exactly the wilderness there. Everyone's going up to the White Mountains in the summer. Well, yeah, because everyone's, but yeah. so, the, and that one stop I'm talking about is the last real stop with food items like that before you actually hit like the the kankamagus highway oh, like, yeah. so, where well, there's so nothing this is like the place that you stop because yeah. if you have to go to the bathroom or you have to do this is where you go and it's not really functional there's no fast food on the kankamagus no 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 are you kidding only if you hit like a deer that's fast food <laughs> I guess. or a moose <laughs> have you so, ever have i hit i've hit a deer not up there oh my god i would never want to hit a moose that was three deer I've, I, I will say a deer hit me. Yeah. I didn't hit the deer. The I've deer killed, jumped out at me. Yeah. Oh, that's how it works. And crushed the front end of I've my I've killed car. three deer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I think mine made it. But the last one was funny for a couple no, of different that's reasons. Not funny. Well, no, not funny. It wasn't funny, but there were funny circumstances around it because I had learned at that point. It was a 113 over in Groveland and it was at night. And I saw a deer off to my left in somebody's yard. And I'm thinking because I'm experienced. There's always two. There's right. always two. That's right. There's always two. And I found the second one in the yard off to my left. Mm-hmm. And then I killed the third one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was the Jeep. So, you know, so Jeep it... wasn't touched. There was this woman behind me who was hysterical. I'm sure. Because c- the deer was dead. Right. And the police showed up later. And what was the first question they asked me? Because I figured she's calling the police, which she was. So I can't, you can't leave the scene. No. They'll, they'll drag, you know. It's a dead deer. What are you going to do? Well, what, what, I don't know. What did they ask you? Do you want it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, of course. And yeah. I said, do you? Do I want it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. for food. No. 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 Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah, strap it to the hood. <laughs> do you want well, it? I almost, I was coming home last week and, and you know, my neighborhood, as you know, because I have tons of deer, that whole long drive, right? Mm-hmm a deer came flying out in front of me and I, where there's one, there's two. And sure enough. And I thank God I wasn't going fast because, and there was a guy right behind me, like right on me. And I'm like, Oh my God, yeah. I was more concerned about getting hit and rear-ended by him than the deer. But the hmm. first one I killed, will you stop saying you killed them? The first one I hit. <sighs> thank you. I hit him so hard <sighs> that he, cause yeah. he just came out. It was at night. It was over I by, over by Western electric. He just came out of nowhere like a ghost. But I hit him and I thought he went over, I thought he went over the top of the car. That's yep. how long before he landed on my windshield. Like he went up in the air and then came back down. And I, I had I had time to have the thought, oh, went over the car. But no, landed on the car. Oh my God. Yeah. Lovely. He, well, he ran away though. Well, well hopefully he. Hopefully. Right. Yeah. Well, the one I hit apparently. Uh, we we all speculated that he survived. She 
was a it was a female. Yeah, I have never seen a moose as we've discussed. I know. I don't want well, to see them that I've way. Never, I've never knock on wood. I've never seen one to ever I, hit one. Though. I don't I want to see one on the highway, no, or so, on the road. Actually, we almost did hit one in Montana because she jumped out in front of us and then i said baby 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 because the baby was coming oh. and we went screeching and all the neighbors came running out thinking that the moose had gotten hit because it's a common occurrence out there because they're everywhere yep so but okay, okay. so we've got on a little digression of <laughs> a little we bit. went we went from duck and donuts <laughs> to burger king to now okay to roadkill to roadkill yeah. all right so that's not the topic of the day um how was your weekend by the way um yeah, like what weekend yeah fine fine uh, i i don't remember anything about it everyone's gonna ask me about how your hair looks today <laughs> so everyone that's listening lou's I, hair looks exactly the same today as it did last week in my opinion now i don't yep. know if anything has changed but no. it looks exactly the same no he might have had a little cut yeah, maybe a little. A little trim. Yeah. But other than that, the color is still the same. And the beard's in the sweet spot because it's colored, but it's got some salt and pepper right now. So. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's in the I sweet spot. It. Yeah. I see it. It's 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 calmer. Yeah. It's calmer. Well, inquiring minds have been asking me about this whole thing <laughs> a sure. lot. So yeah. yes. Anyway, so the last two shows I've talked about codependency and such and um which has led me down to have led me down the path of having multiple other conversations about people asking me about personality disordered people. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh! <laughs> and and I could go really clinical on this, or I could have some fun with it, or do a little combination of both. But borderline personality disorder, oh, or a range of we could yeah. we could talk about borderline personality disorder. Yeah. But but I was thinking more along the lines of narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. And histrionic personality disorder, because there are there are multiple there are multiple types of personality disorders. Do you know anything about personality disorders? I've had I feel I've had some experience with narcissists and borderline personality. Borderlines, really? Yeah, that's that's an unusual. Aren't they, they're sometimes confused, aren't they? Well, it's people people. It's kind of like when people say I'm so depressed or she's so bipolar or she's so borderline it's overused for and yeah. miss and mis misused and misdiagnostically used yeah. so it's very specific well it's the webnd thing right you start reading up about them and then everybody's a borderline dr personality. google yeah i call it dr google yeah. yeah um well yeah you read anything on dr google and then you're gonna have it and be dead in four yeah. hours or you see it in other people right yeah so i so well so i thought well i'm not gonna go through all of them but I'm going to stick to specific ones because they were related to codependency and, and how sometimes people with codependency issues have some personality things mm -hmm. um, and not all. So of course, generalizing, but so, so in general, personality disorders come in clusters. Did you know they come in clusters? I did not. Yes. So they come in cluster A, cluster B, cluster C, right? So we're not doing all the clusters, but we're going to focus on the ones that I'm going to focus on the ones that have the characterological issues, which are the narcissism, the histrionic and the borderline. Okay. It's all kinds of new stuff today. I'm excited. I know, right? Yeah. You haven't had this one before. Yeah. So, and, the, and it also is very um, connected to addiction, which is often something we talk about. And right. it's connected to um, uh, people who have severe anxiety about relationships in some ways and mm -hmm. how they manage their relationships or not. Yep. Um, so, but, and then, then the other clusters have ones that are much more, how to describe them. They're not as uh they're subtle? not as in your face. Oh, not as in your face. Right. Okay. They're not more as um, yeah. bizarre. They're bizarre. They're more like, um, they are bizarre. They're more like schizoaffective, which is that it, it looks a certain way on a person's face affectively. Okay. And then the behaviors are a little bizarre and odd. Um, and then you have, you know, a variety of other things. Um, paranoid personality, mm -hmm. obviously, that's exactly what it is. It was very obvious. But the ones that, the ones that seem to, run through this through all of us because we all have a little bit of all of these things yep. are are the characterological ones um that that stream up from narcissism histrionics and and borderline so borderline personality let's get that one off the table because and then we can come back to it borderline personality disorder is um 
is one of the hardest to diagnose. It's very rare to diagnose. Um, I had a great um, uh, supervisor slash boss who ended up being a mentor of mine in the beginning of my career, who was amazing. And he had is the most most telling, amazing diagnostic skill of the world, but so unscientifically proven, but I never will forget it. 26 years later in my career, I still use it that if someone makes you feel like you have to roll your eyes, you've got a personality disorder sitting in front of you. So if you're fair <laughs> enough, he, yeah, he would say to me, he said, if you have to feel that roll your eye feel, you know, you've got a personality disorder sitting in front of you. Yep. So that's, you know, a very loose diagnostic and a little tongue in cheek, but that's what he used to tell me. He said, you know, you've got a big one. If it's a roll, an eye roller, like, yeah. oh, please. You know? That's not bad. Uh, it's what? That's not bad. N no. It's, I, no, I mean, it's not a bad mm -mm. little thumbnail. No, it's a, it's a, it's a great way to actually, yeah. you know, know, like, oh, please, you know, the roll eyes. Um, but borderline personality disorder is predominantly, and I'm generally speaking now, predominantly female related men can have it too it's usually not diagnosed until it's not childhood at all this is not something childhood this is usually something that we would pick up later in late teens of teenage girls or later um and we call it the kiss of death diagnosis because once you're labeled with that we try not to label personality disorders in people because one people are developing for a long period of time. Right. But I try to stay away from ever labeling people anyway, but just if you do this as a diagnostic in any kind of like label kind of way that, you know, you, you see it in someone's chart, it's not a good one to have, not because it's no one's a bad person, whatever, but it, it comes with a stigma that's so hard to break and shake that once that gets in your chart and it goes to the next person, the next person, people see it, there's an automatic judgment call on it, which yep. is unfortunate because what brings with, with borderline is the, it's a, it's a lack of emotional regulation. It's a lack of intimacy, ability to connect with others, reciprocity. It's, it's a, it's a basic massive failure of relatable skills mm -hmm. and having emotional dysregulation as well as low self-esteem, high probability of sexual promiscuity. Um, it, it kind of combines like all the histrionics and the narcissism and all the pieces of paranoia and all the pieces of relationship dysfunction all in one big happy yeah. place. Um, so it's very hard to diagnose and commonly um, people be like, oh, she, she's so borderline, uh, whatever, you know, that the, the borderline diagnostic itself is um, usually it's females who have had some kind of trauma and it's usually sexualized trauma, not always, but usually in the history, there's something that has happened in a sexualized way in early childhood or somewhere in the midst of some kind of neglect and negligence on the part of the caregivers mm -hmm. into this child who has then had either one or many experiences to have to form the uh, dysfunction of dysregulation around emotions. So we use a specific technique and therapy for it called DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. Marsha Linehan, here's the technical part. Marsha Linehan is a very famous theorist and therapist who's uh, built this really great program protocol around how to treat it. Um, working with people with borderline personality disorder is exhausting, hence the eye roll. Um, and I happen to work with multiples of them. Um, I, I do, because I, I have to say that I actually do a good job with them because I've been around many in my life. And so I have a propensity to be able to tolerate the intensity of the feelings and the emotions that come with the love hate that one puts on you um, and the maneuvering of the coping strategies that they have adopted um, based on the fact that I've been around them all my life growing up. Yeah. So I am good at being able to be with them. Um, but they're very rare as a diagnostic and people can have features of it, which is why I back it down to the features of histrionics and narcissism, because we all have a little histrionic in us and histrionic is we have a little drama. We all, we all tend to go towards being a little dramatic or a little bit over the top sometimes, or, you know, we're a little bit, you know, maybe extra extroverted or, 
which that doesn't mean you have personality disorder, but you have features of it. Do you see me like, look at yeah. me. I'm like a mess. I'm, this room, <laughs> I swear. If people can't see me. I'm like rubbing my eye now. You must do something in here to make me like lose my, my marbles. Blaming it on me now? I am. It's like you set it up, so now I'm like itchy. Um, maybe it's my mascara. Got to be the sunproofing, soundproofing. But it's the sound. I think it's the soundproofing in here. Um, hey, but the but um, histrionic is is kind of just a kind of catch all for people. I think it's a catch all for people that you know that are just a little bit over the top. The you know their stories are extra extra. Yeah you know and they're kind of funny and and there's not there's no real harm in it but it can be a lot now you you combine that with borderline personality disorder all kinds of fun and then we're game on yeah and then we add in narcissism so we're gonna so narcissism is really where i was gonna go today to talk about because it goes with the codependency piece it goes with the the health and wellness of so many people we all have narcissism in us, yeah. all of us. And so people have such a bad connotation to narcissism, but we have to have narcissism in us because it protects us. Um, so there's good, as much as you can, there's good, healthy narcissism. Right. And then there's the stuff that, you know, it goes right over the cliff and it's out of control and it's over the top. So when someone calls you a narcissist, well, you know, maybe uh, you have to look at it, right? And yeah. so it's, and it's dependent on, how it's functioning, how you impact your functioning, how you impact other people's functioning, how you're impacting the world around you, et cetera. But narcissism comes from the internal um, breakdown of the ego. And so very technical and people are like probably thinking, what is she talking about? <laughs> Remember our ego is that thing, that structure in your mind and your body that you can't see. It's that thing that is your reality. It's I, I see the world in a certain way. And the reason why I see it in a certain way is because I was raised a certain way. Right. You you have your perception. I have my perception. So my reality is my ego. Your reality is your ego. And oftentimes healthy, healthy people's realities are very similar and the egos are very matching. But we all have little damages, baggage, fractures, hurts, injuries to our ego. Some people want to call it the seat of the soul. Some people hmm. call it their inner core. Um, but it's kind of your center point of where you kind of have your belief system about yourself, the world, and how the world believes about you. And so when we talk about narcissism, we typically don't talk about it in a good way. We talk about, you want to say, oh, he's so narcissistic. Don't you love him? Come on over and let's have dinner. <laughs> we talk about it in that negative way because it's usually how it impacts us is that someone is so full of themselves or so over the top with, you know, oh, I went to Italy, but they tell the narcissist will tell you that they flew around the world twice backwards and it was on, you know, a flying pig, you know, yeah, yeah. there's always something embellished or something grander or bigger. Um, and, and I have a lot of colleagues who don't work with people with personality disorders that are full blown, like I do. And they always say, how can you, how can you do that? And I, I genuinely say, and you'll laugh because I know that you hear me sometimes come in on, on a, on a rant and I have compassion for the fact that they're using what they have as a coping strategy because they've been hurt and damaged so much and fractured in that space that, um, they, they feel the need to have to do that, to make themselves relevant and have purpose and have, have someone maybe appreciate them or feel like they're there's but something you can get out of the context of your own ego yes this is where people get into trouble in mm -hmm. interrelationships because the uh perspective of the person we're talking about often offends your ego mm -hmm. and so it, it's difficult it's tough to just disassociate your own ego and understand try to understand that that's the way they are that's right. why they that's why they see and say what they see and say Yes, because uh, it sounds like you're also thinking of something really specific, like uh, of an example. No, I just think oh. that's why you probably relate to these personalities better, because most people don't have the ability to get out of their own context. Right, right. They only see it through their perspective and their ego. Right. And oftentimes the narcissist will, uh, you know, be aggressive towards that. Well, a narcissist, uh, typically a full-blown narcissist won't see reciprocity. There is no other side. It's only right. their perspective, yeah. you know. And then when people, when, when us, you know, normal run in the mill every day kind of narcissism runs through us, we see other, but we, we stand to preserve our own yeah. by just standing for our own 
meaning self. And but we don't confront it. Right. With, with a healthy perspective, you don't necessarily confront it. You just right. say, okay, well, right. he thinks what he thinks. And right. And, and that's then fine. Whatever. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and hence the eye roll. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the eye roll of like, oh boy. Right. Because yeah. when we do the eye roll, it kind of pushes our buttons because we know that it's it's either an exaggeration or it's BS or it's, you know, something that isn't quite right in terms of the truth or sitting with the reality of the reality of the situation or the possibilities. You know, it's usually, it's usually very unrealistic, irrational and unreasonable of whatever the person's saying. And your eye roll usually ends the discussion in your mind. Yes. Like I've gone as far as I can go with this. The shutdown. Yeah. It's like, yep, I'm out. Okay. Yes. I'm moving over here to that other thing. Yep. So it's funny because people, when, you know, we'll all be together and some, you know, a bunch of us and, and I'll be listening to someone and everyone else will be kind of engaging and keep talking to a person that's like that. And I'm already onto something else. And people say, how, how did you just step out of that? I'm like, I shut it down. Yep. I just shut it down because I know. And, and I'm like, oh, well, that's good. Yeah. That that's wonderful. Ex- that's a healthy acceptance of duality. Really I use reciprocity. Yeah, reciprocity. Yeah. Reciprocity. I usually term it duality, that you understand that there are people out there who have different pasts, different feelings. And as long as it's not in my way, it's fine. Well, I think, okay, so to that point, and I have two points here. So to that point, that I think that when when you're impacted by someone with narcissism, it's because you, it's coming in conflict with what you know is reality for yourself. And so therefore you're trying to challenge it. So you'll challenge back as, as if you're going, well, but that can't be true. And then what happens is it tightens up the narcissist foundation to be even more confrontational or maybe challenging or maybe more, more, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right. Instead of it just being like, okay, relax. It's okay. Everything's fine. Um, But because narcissisms don't, narcissists don't like to be challenged because the the underside of narcissism is shame yes and and i've said this before and shame is shame can be good and shame can be unhealthy okay but you know there's a there's good healthy shame because you can you can have you can use that as an actual tool to like get people to like see like how something's not a good thing um but then you can also overshame someone and then they become shaming of themselves and it, they can gaslight themselves because they've yeah. been taught to gaslight themselves because other people are gaslighting. Them. It's a show, isn't it? In other words, the narcissist doesn't believe he's the greatest. He's worried that you're going to find out he's, he's not. not. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's all about, uh, it's smoke and mirrors. Yeah. It's about the insecurity. So narcissism truly is the insecurities that you fear will be seen and that you'll be transparent. So what you do is you build a bigger wall, a bigger story, a bigger, grander, um, facade to make you look a certain way and some of the best narcissists in the world are very very good at at charming you into thinking that they are these things so and and i'm always very skeptical because of what i do for a living that so when i hear things and when they seem bigger and better than they are i'm often like "Mm, Mm. mm." it's that "Mm." plus Whereas Narci- other people are very impressed by it, I tend to be like, huh, interesting. Plus, narcissists are very skilled at picking people who buy the show. Well, so if they're engaging with you, there's something about you that, and it's not, it's not conscious, but they've right. kind of attached to you because you have some qualities that make them feel that their real personality, you will not find out their real personality. Well, so it's an interesting thing because because we all we all do this until we become self-aware because we want to become self-aware. We will pull for what we know. Now, what that means in, in psych world is that we all we all will will reach subconsciously and unconsciously for for people in relationships that fill patterns of our past or our current that just keep us going, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. So say you're raised in a household with a narcissistic parent and, uh, you know, you go and date in your teenage years, you're, you are more likely to date people who are narcissistic because you were raised in a narcissistic environment. You will pull for people that tend to maybe on the surface, they won't look like that initially, but underneath we have a, we have this, inner sense, our ego, it's that intuition, it's that gut feeling that we can pull for, oh, this person has this, this, and this. But by the time you, you know, 
I, I liken it to, well, by the time you're a year in to the friendship or the relationship, you're like, oh, I need a divorce <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because you've realized it, but you're already too far in because what was presented in the beginning, if you all of a sudden have good self-awareness, you go, uh-oh. Yeah. And in personal, and we have, we have bound because it's a big boundary cross because narcissists will cross over your boundaries and they do that from the beginning, but they do it in a charming way to get you to, it's a maneuvering coping strategy to get you to, I need you to need me to need you. Remember what I've said, right? I need you to need me to need you. So it preys on people who are nurturers. It preys on people who want to give and be loved and liked and affection in, and then once that person has pulled you in, it's a way of, of then controlling and for the relationship to hold it in place so that there's no abandonment, no rejection. And, and that can lead to massive amounts of codependency and addiction to the relationship. It can lead to battering for some people. It can lead to all kinds of, um, enabling in addiction. Um, you know, people can't get out or feel like can't get out because the, the vicious cycle is that if I, if I, if I unravel this circle or this vicious place that the person who's the narcissist will fall apart and something bad will happen to them. It'll be your fault. When in fact, that's not true. That's not realistic, but because you you have been pulled for, or you have pulled for that person towards you, you, there's that sense of responsibility and accountability for somehow now you've been co-creating this relationship instead of saying like, I'm out, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys, but it's really hard because once you're in it, the narcissistic hurts of the other person become yours. If you don't have empathy, because empathy gives you distance, you can, you can compassion and have, like I said, at the top of the show, having compassion and detachment from I, I understand it, but I'm not going to join you. Whereas people who get involved and get stuck in it and get enmeshed, they end up becoming um, narcissistically inter- intertwined with the person's stuff and they get, yeah. you know. And codependency is a huge part of that yes. because that's what, that's in the transition between you meet the person and they're charming. Yes. And you engage with them. Right. And then at a certain point you come become codependent. So when the narcissism starts to show itself and you start to wear on it, the codependency keeps you there. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, one of the, I use this when I I teach my graduate level class, I use serial killers as my, as as my extreme example, because um, Ted Bundy, for instance, right. He's probably one of the best examples of, and John Wayne Gacy, you know, the clown, Mm -hmm. the clown, Um, very charming. The level of narcissism, if you watch their documentaries and you watch their film and you go back and really watch for this, the level of, of, ego fracture, their reality fractures of how they grew up and how they manifested to become who they are and the storyline that they would build would make them never be seen as a person that would do the horrific things that they did. But in fact, that narcissism is what allowed them to get to the level of being able to hurt people because they preyed on the vulnerability of other people to be pulled in by that. Yeah, they, they've picked types. They're, yes. they're very good at picking types. Right. Our buddy Ron asks, if you were raised in that environment, wouldn't you be more apt to cope with it? But you're a child as you're being raised by it. You don't have the skill set to cope. So so that's a great question, Ron. Good morning, Ron. Um, so you are raised, if you're raised in that environment, you often have a resiliency that gets built around it because kids are very resilient to it. Yep. But what also happens at the same time is there's usually other vulnerabilities there, which are, and we can see, we can see them and predict for them if, if we have them in front of us, but there's usually resiliency. And then there's usually some other faulty things that are happening that you can usually see. And, and, like if someone was sitting in front of me as like a third or fourth grader and I could see the resiliency, but I knew there was this other piece, I'd be able to probably tell where in their line of what's happening in their home life and their school life and their athletic life, where is it that they're going to have a vulnerability? And then we'd give information to the teachers or whoever to like shore those edges up so they'd be able to keep flourishing. Unfortunately, you can't do that for all the people in the world that have all these issues, but Um, you would think that they would have that, but what happens is that there's a, um, I've lost the word. It's a, it's a coping strategy. It's a, it's a compensating skill that happens that in trying to compensate to protect one's ego themselves from being damaged by the narcissist, 
you know, in the mm -hmm. house, it gives them resiliency, but also can lead them into becoming narcissistic because they're, they're trying to compensate so hard for not being damaged that it leads them down a similar path. First, as you put it, we seek the devil we know. Right. Because we're comfortable with it and we can handle it because right. we have. Right. Secondly, how many people have you come across? It's like you look at your parents' marriage or something and usually they run. They, sometimes they run the other direction, but more often than not, at some point in your life, you realize I recreated my parents' marriage. You, you weren't going to. You didn't intend to. Right. But you ended up in the same for the same reasons you seek the familiar. And and so, I mean, so, you know, people often laugh about like, oh, I married my mother or I married my father. Right. Right. But there's this there's that in that. Is it is it we go and re, we recapitulate. Yeah. Right. We repeat the patterns of the family of origin if we don't have good self-awareness and we don't know. What it we don't know what it is we're looking at until we're in it. And then all of a sudden we might not still know what it is, but we know it doesn't feel right, but we're right. just so used to it that it's like, okay, we're just going to go with this. Um, and I have many an aha moment in my office when I point out what's going on of people being like, Oh, I've been doing that. And my parents do that. And <laughs> like, right. Cause yeah. it's a parallel process to your point. That's so common. And it's not just for, nar I mean, I could give you probably at least a dozen different patterns that would be like this. It just happens to be that we've been on the theme of codependency and addiction and, and narcissism. So this is how it tends to fall out is, is in this way. So, so most kids, most kids will come out with resiliency and, and, and toughness around this and not have as many fractures, but you know, when you're raised in a household, it's it's like being raised in a household that has physical abuse sometimes. It's not physical abuse, it's emotional abuse. So mm -hmm. if someone's constantly at you going, oh, you're so stupid, or oh my God, you can't tie your shoes. Oh my God, you know, you, you don't eat right, you know, or you, you know, little kids, we're talking like two, three, four, you yeah. know, takes you too long. Um, shaming, 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 embarrassment, making the child feel like they're incapable, they're bad. All those things that, you know, the zero mark all the way up to about six years old, that all gets imprinted. And then once that's set, that is what sets a child up to become an adult who then has all these other issues. Now, if there's a resiliency person, or I, I call it the, the emotional yummy, you know, mm -hmm. I've talked about it before. My grandmother yep. was always my emotional yummy, right? She was my resilience maker. So I, I strongly believe and feel and know, because she and I had many conversations before her passing, that had she not been in my buffer zone a lot there, I probably wouldn't have known some of the things I knew because I wouldn't have been as aware. I wouldn't have known to yeah. talk about that because there was so many things around me and in that coaching world and that gymnastics world and that whole like lifestyle that I was in that made it just left of center kind of thing. Um, and, but having an emotional yummy person, whether that's your uh, a relative, a coach, a teacher, someone that's giving you just enough to help you see that you're not crazy, things aren't, that's not normal, yeah. and it doesn't have to be like that. You just have to be able to function in the environment and then know that eventually you're going to get out of the environment. I remember for me, it was um, forming friends and then seeing, spending time in other households, mm -hmm. you know, and then you go, oh, well, that's what parenting looks like. That's what a, that's what a married couple looks like because it was so different. You grow up in your house, that's all you know. Mm -hmm. Right. But you see other couples and you see other family situation and go, oh, I want more of that. And that's where that self-awareness starts to happen. Um, yes. Well, the, the self-awareness, well, there's a couple of things there. The yeah. self-awareness, you were, as you were saying that is similar. Did you just see what Ron just posted yeah. up? So, so Ron, so this goes to the self-awareness piece because Ron just wrote, if you remove that from your life, doesn't it create a void leaving you with an insecurity of what your life or world would be without it. So similar. Um, yes, it can. And not necessarily because. But when it's just in the house and the, the talk you're talking about, where you're talking down to young kids, the young right. kid is thinking my parent accepts me, even though I'm awful. Right. So you're kind of attached to them. But again, once you get out in the world and you start to see, you know, I remember going over to a friend's house and their parents were great and loved us and you know treated me like a kid and it was just a happy place. And it's like, oh, this is what a functioning family looks like. Right. You know. Right. But see, the thing is, is in an, so if we look at just narcissistic homes, it's not like that. The child that's in a narcissistic narcissistic home typically doesn't feel 
loved and accepted. They typically no. are conditionally loved and everything's conditional. And it's not necessarily said, it's subtle. Right. It's it's the it's the quintessential, you know, gaslight. You know, it's that emotional abuse that's subtle, that's underlying, it's covert. And that's why we call it, you know, there's a, there's a big movement on talking about covert narcissism or, or you know, toxic masculinity sometimes gets tossed into the covert, covert narcissism because boys tend to be taught this, um, you know, don't cry. If you cry, you're big baby or they're sissy or yeah. you're like, you know. So there's a toxicity that gets built around that. That's a whole nother show, right? That, but just for this example is that the, the self-awareness piece around that, the narcissism that damages the seat of the soul of that child um, then perpetuates itself because it just runs rampant because the covertness then falls out into other relationships, you know, many, many times bullying. Bullies, bullies are, are narcissists. Yeah. And where do they learn it? At, at home. home yeah there's there's a line and you know and people say oh that's not true there you can usually draw a direct line from bully at school to bully parent at home who's bullying the child and the child who's bullying at school is picking on kids that he or she deems is similar to the way that they're getting bullied at home and it, and it backs up the line and you can use it's like it's like addiction you can see the line going right back through it's yeah. quite something but their their little awareness thing is they get out in the world and they go oh here's a situation where i have some control i can pick on younger kids right and gain some i can be in control as opposed to at home where i'm not where in control I'm, of anything. i have no control yeah right right and then the and then you see like the parent will come to the defense of their child and usually i, I worked in a school system for several years and i had the lovely privilege of narcissistic parents coming to me all the time saying, not my child yeah. and using identical words of their child as the bully, as the adult. And I thought, huh, apple yeah. doesn't fall far from that tree. And you can see it and very delicately and dip diplomatically pointing that out, which of course always goes so swimmingly well, yeah. um, you know, that, you know, could this be a thing here? And, you know, and it's not every parent because it's not all parents that are having that, but by and large, you see that that narcissistic injury at home is just being passed down. And then you have that intergenerational pass of narcissism, yep. um, you know, personality disorders, you know, are, are characterological in, the, in this case, and, and they have that trait and state base. So, and people are like, oh, can it be genetically passed? So there's a, you know, it's, it's not like uh, ADD in the same way, or it's not like uh, schizophrenia. It's not like a gene in that way. It's something that's nurtured generationally in, yep. and in, and in, and in, and in. So it keeps going and you can see it and you have to have really good self-awareness to pop yourself out of it. And to Ron's point, um, you know, if you, if you eventually pull yourself out of that, the re the relief you know, as a child, you can't because you're stuck usually. But once you get self-awareness and you get to the point where you can really pull yourself out of the clutches of a narcissistic system, the relief that comes on the soul is is quite something. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine at length um, last week about this, about how long sometimes it takes. You know, I have, I have people in their 50s and 60s working on this right now. And and then I'm, I'm talking to my friend who's in their thirties and they're feeling like they're way behind on this and just realizing it and kind of beating themselves up over the fact that they've stayed in this dynamic system for so long. Yep. Um, and I'm like, Oh no, you're, you're good. Yeah. You're good. You're working on it nice and early because the fact that you're catching it in your early thirties to know that this is something that has to change, you know? Um, but awareness and that outside perspective, that outside looking in perspective on a relationship is a, a, huge step i mean just the fact that you're finally understanding it means you've come a long way right you got a long way. everyone's going to deal with it. you're going to deal with it the rest of your life it's right. your foundation well and, and 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 that's the thing is you'll in going to your point a few minutes ago you just you're going to keep pulling for it you're going to end up marrying it you're going to end up being it you're going to transfer it over to your kids you're going to have other people around you you're going to push people away from you and you don't have to be at the extreme end of the line on these on these narcissistic tendencies you can just have just a little faint piece of it and just have enough of a of a personality to make people around you eye roll that you shut everybody out so you're you're um, 
lonely and rejected, yeah. you know? And so interesting little tie in, um, cause women, now this should be interesting. <laughs> women tend to get labeled as being bitchy or nasty or narcissistic or whatever, when they're asserting themselves and advocating for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, when in fact, that's not what that is. It's someone advocating for themselves and being assertive, but we've socially normed a lot of the narcissistic tendencies of what we would think is when someone speaks up for themselves or someone says, Hey, I've done that. Um, women tend to get flagged for that being narcissistic versus men counterparts get it like, Oh, that's a kudo. That's great. You know, kind of thing. Um, so there's an interesting gender differentiation in that whole, um, way socially norm things see it, but it's, it's actually narcissism and it's, you know, narcissism, we tend to not, we as in females, we tend to, um, wear our hearts on our sleeves to show ourselves and that's a healthy thing, but then we end up getting emotionally annihilated when we advocate for ourselves and as a female, or if we're saying something that's assertive to stand up for something like I was talking about last week in codependency and, you know, standing up for the rights of yourself or someone else that you love, um, you know, with a doctor, for instance. Yeah. That's, you know, um, that scene is, you know, you're, you're being difficult or you're being, you know, narcissistic or you're being, you know, too full of yourself because you might know something. Right. Um, well, no, it's called advocacy. So, you know, there's some fine lines to some of those things, but nonetheless, you know, when you see it full blown, people just kind of fall into the parallel, parallel world of, Mm. oh, it's narcissism and it's a terrible, awful thing. So you've identified two problems. Yes. One of which is that getting into a relationship with a narcissist and being sucked in before you have some awareness and getting yourself in a possibly a codependent situation, but a situation that's difficult for you. And then you've identified you perpetuating those traits to some degree. Right. So how do we deal? How do we, how do we deal with this? How awareness is the beginning of it, right? Awareness. Well, awareness is the beginning of it. And hopefully you can get aware of it sooner rather than later. You know, I, I love it when I have younger people come in and start talking to me about like whatever their relationship things are going on. Cause usually that's where you can pick it out. And, um, just kind of like a right off the top, if you have addiction in your family, here it comes back to addiction. Um, if you have addiction in your family, you're likely you're surrounded by some narcissism. I mean, it just, they go hand in hand. I'm half Irish. So At, <laughs> don't pick on the Irish. I didn't say I'm not picking on the Irish. Am I tried or anybody no. that's, I just, but if you have addiction yeah. in your family, the, the likelihood is that there's a, a heavy load of narcissism because it's a coping strategy to allow oneself to feel okay about themselves enough to be able to manage whatever it is that their ism is, you know, is, is bringing to them because the remember the thing that they're doing, like the drinking, the drugging, the sex, the shopping, the eating, the ever exercise, whatever it is, that's the symptom of the problem. And the, the problem is the underlying injuries that have happened to the person as, as a growing up person that end up becoming the damage pieces that end up making them go towards the relationship with something else because the the disconnect of the relationship with the person in front of them their parent their their guardian their primary person in their life has been damaged so that's what they reach for because they look for how to fill their their shame base how do they how do they not feel like they're a bad person yeah. so they go towards something that they think will make them feel better but in fact that can bring them you know to their functional death i know what this sounds like but i am irish that's not only generational among yeah. the Irish, it's millennial. It, yeah. This has been happening for millennia. Mm-hmm. The whole Irish family, the whole Irish family dynamic for the most part is about you just as a kid, you know, kids, your parents don't think much of you right. or you're a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Basically, generally well, speaking. And, it's, and it's not just to Irish. So if we talk, because talk generations about- ago, you were one of 10. Right. And it's in, so in culturally, right? Yeah. So if we just talk culturally, it's not just Irish. I mean, we can go I, Irish. I, I'm not familiar with others. So, so, so Irish yeah. definitely always gets it because that's yeah. what, look at all the jokes. I mean, yep. I mean, Bill Burr just makes his whole living off of picking up Love Irish Bill people. Burr. And, yeah. right. um, but um, it's Irish. You've got any, anyone that has those heavier drinking, at, you know, yeah. Irish, Italian, Russian, Czechoslovakian, Polish, like you've got all the, you've got all the, the regions of the world that have very heavily 
set character logical pieces that are based in socialization around relating to alcohol. And so instead of relating to each other, you know, going back historically, one, you know, works hard in the, in the potato field or one's working hard for whatever coal or, you know, whatever, then they, they come together socially around connecting and it's alcohol or something else. But the, uh, the, this is probably getting too detailed on this, but it, it's it's a good example. The Irish dynamic and the Italian dynamic, mm. and again, I can speak to them because I come from it, uh, are a little bit different. Yes. The Italian mothers love their kids mm -hmm. and show it. Mm -hmm. You know, Irish mothers, it's a little bit more hurting than than parenting. So, so yeah, so the and so, I'm, I know I realize I'm speaking in general terms, right. and there are differences. So there's, and, so yeah. there's definitely different parental styles, but at the but the when we're just talking about like the codependency pieces and the narcissism oh, around yeah. around like the the cultural pieces of just alcohol or drinking because they both have very heavy drinking environments. Yep. That's one thing. Oh. When when we start talking about personality development of children and how they become adults, given those cultures. Um, the Irish generalizing again, yeah. not and not stereotyping, just generalizing. The Irish culture tends to be much more stoic and secretive and locked down and bury everything underneath the carpet. Yeah. And um, you, and you can except the grudges and the anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, and you see yeah. you see a lot more of the um, type A intense personality cardiovascular heart conditions diabetes yep. because the internal suppression and oppression of the feelings is there because of the cultural dynamic there right. and i'm saying that loosely because i could say a lot about that but that show, sure. show is not about that we could do a whole show on this because yeah. about the and then and then the italian side you know picking on the italian side for a second the italian side is much more about like love 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 talk 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 fight 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 out loud everything's out in the open and then we drink for it yep <laughs> So, so you it's sort of like tongue in cheek, the Irish bury everything, drink on top of it and stuff it. And the right. Italians scream about it, get animated and then drink to celebrate that we're all okay. <laughs> so when you're Irish and Italian like me, you get a real, so you're very, you got a lot going you're on. You're like, wait, which way am I supposed to go? A right. Lot going on. So we, yeah. we go but, well, Irish mother, Italian father. So they kind of, kind of steered things. Right. Yeah. And and so so I'll 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 fun aside, but it's it is true that but there's what ends up happening is and if I can drive this point home is that you have these narcissistic injuries, you have these little injuries that have accumulated over time that you've made meaning of. Now the same thing might have happened to me growing up in the same home as you've grown up in, and I might come out totally different than yep. you. And people sure. ask me that all the time, like I had eight brothers and two sisters, we all grew up together, and three are alcoholics and two are multimillionaires. And yep. it's, it's about the resiliency factor of the child and also where they're born in the line and how the parent was, you know, I have, I have people in my life that had set, you know, seven brothers and a six brothers and a sister and a six brothers and a sister. And they were like seven altogether, whatever. And, and depending on where they are on the line, the parent was an alcoholic for the first few children. And then became a recovering alcoholic and the back children didn't have the same experience as the front children. Front children have heavy set pieces of addiction in them and the latter part yeah. still have it, but it's much more contained. So that's resiliency. That's how you're exposed. That's exposure based. So yeah, they still had the genetic pull for it, but in, you know, and by the way, cultural, big culture yeah. pieces to those, you know, so. But there's it, also external for the children too. Yeah. You know, you fell into athletics early. I fell right. into athletics early. You have coaches, you have mentors, you have right. friends, and that combination of experiences influences how you react to your family upbringing as and, well. And those are protective factors. Yeah. Protective factors give you that because I grew up in, well, two things. I did my genetic history. And so it's not what I was told I was raised. As I was raised, I was not raised in the way that I'm actually genetically loaded for. And yep. so, but I was raised as Irish and Polish and Welsh and all the, you know, those things. But I had very big genetic, uh, I had very good protective environmental factors around because I was a gymnast, because I was always engaged in other things. I never had a propensity to go towards what would be considered my genetic load for addiction and all those things. But being Thank a God. good athlete, being a good student right. helps like that self-image. Those pieces were yeah. always in place. So that was good. Yeah. Um, you know, 
and it's interesting because when I did my DNA and my genetic history, I'm actually not what I was told. I, I mean, smidgens of it, like I am something very different. And so I'm actually not as genetically loaded for it. So I now know in my head, I'm probably was more protected even beyond that than I, than they ever thought, because I don't have that genetic load. Um, according to 23andMe, I don't. Um, and And that's that's a spin of the wheel too. My two kids have different genetic makeups. The same kids. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, same parents, same ethnicity, same backgrounds. Right. But the genetics got passed on differently. Well, yeah, because there's your there's your Punnett square, right? Your four, yeah. you know, your A, your big A, your little A's and how they fall out and whatever and, mm-hmm. and whatever the genetic code that is passed to each child. I'm an only. So I I, I had me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, but it's interesting because I'm so science based and I love the fact to find out like all my life, I always thought blah, blah, blah. And then I find out through other things like, wait a second, not only was I not genetically loaded for that, I was protected. And that's why I didn't get pushed towards that. And, and I, and I don't have to fight it as hard, but I was, I was genetically loaded for weight issues, which is why I run. So, and that does fall in line with the genetic side that I come down on of what they say my ancestry is because I'm not that and I am that. That (laughs) side that I am on is, tends to be more heavy. So there you go. But that, in those circumstances for me, like I said, ran into that family and it's like, that's what I want the family to be. And so I brought it forward with my kids and my family and trying to put that together as opposed to trying to recreate my home. Right. And so you have, so you have to have that you have to have that self-awareness early. Like I had a self-awareness when I was like around 11. I always go back to around 11 and it's a longer story than I have time today to talk about. But when I was around 11 years old, I knew, I knew one that I wasn't going to be pulling forward some of the stuff I was seeing in my life around me in terms of like my, I'll just say my, my whole environment so that no one gets thrown under the bus. But I knew from then on, I was going to not be doing that. And I had a couple good resiliency protective factor, yummy people in my life that could help me through that. And um, they didn't know what was going on, but they just, I utilized them as my resources to, to always model off of. And it, and it helped me for sure. And I'm seeing like lots of little comments. Yeah. Ron's continuing the discussion we had on his show yesterday, but he's talking about it's nature versus nurture, your DNA as opposed to your circumstances. It's both. Yeah. So it's and it depends never... on what you're talking about. Addictive predisposition, DNA plays a large role in that. So, it? so or in, in, heredity in psychology and psychiatry in, in medical, we would, we would definitely say back in the day, it was genetics. Then we came forward and said, it's environment. Now we, now we know, and we have really good science and not just soft science. We have good science that says, here's things that are going to definitely be both. And here's something that's going to be more heavy DNA right. with an environmental push. Cause we have twin studies. We've done longitudinal studies. We just know, cause we've done some great research across the board on so many different things, especially in addiction. So, but what I can say in terms of like, as a specific to this topic today is if you're, if you are coming from a family who has a lineage of alcohol or addiction in it, you are going to have that genetic load. That doesn't mean it will be acted on. It's right. going to be acted on only if the environment provi- is provided to you that allows for, allows is probably not the right word, but it, it it opens the opportunity for it to happen. You're more likely, like say predictably, that if you're born into a family of drinkers and people who are using drugs and who are actively codependent, all those things, you're more likely going to be part of that. Period. If you're born into a family, like I have a friend that was born as a twin, he and they were adopted. He was he was born into a birth family that both mom and dad were addicts, but he was adopted by non-addict family and no no drinking, no drugging, no nothing in front, and he has no issue. But his genetic twin was adopted by a family that has that in it in, on top of it nurturing yep. and he is full-blown the combination triggered it so the combination triggered it anybody so, who's raised more than one kid understands right. that and there's, there's a role for nature and nurture and by the way the nature of the two kids is going to be different too you know one's going to have exactly. more predisposition one's going to have another ron Yes, Ron, that that was my point, that that was the environment that enriched that. Ron, I'm going to have to come on your show, and we're going to have to talk about this. Yeah, he wants you on his show. I know. Next week. Oh, no, not next week. I can't do next week. We'll talk about it. Okay. So 
But Ron, thank you for participating today. I love the questions. We'll have to do a call in. But you're, you're, it's an interesting um, examples you brought up where you've got the same set of genetics. Yeah. Parents, and they'll have what four kids, yep. and they'll have completely different outcomes because their nature and their nurturing, the sequences were different, or things happen right. differently. Right. Well, and that's and that's you know, parent. It's science. That's science. It's, like, it's, like for example, if you have if your parents are always putting you down. Yep. And they ruin your self image. Yep. And you go to school and you struggle at school. Yep. And you struggle in athletics. Yep. It's just going to contribute to that. And lead to more problems. Yes, because it lowers your self-esteem, and your self-esteem yeah. is constantly being, you know, constantly tipped, you know, ticked at, ticked at, and so, and that. But I will tell you that at least in, in psych, from zero to six years old is where it all gets laid down and imprinted. So if you're, if you grow, if you've got a zero to one years old, if your trust level of like the world around you isn't really giving you what you need and nurturing you right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And then you go into the next level of like really trying to be more autonomous. Like, you know, you go through potty training and you're two, three years old and you're trying to be autonomous and it's not really happening the way that, you know, maybe you're being shamed about it, whatever, yeah. and you're not really making it through. And you're trying to be age appropriately taking initiative to like, you know, put your shoes on the right way or dress yourself or feed yourself and you're shamed or you're guilted for the way you make someone feel. Yep. And then you get into like the school age, you know, four five, six, and you're having, you know, you know, you're trying to have play dates and you want to be able to go off and do little league and girl scouts and boys, whatever it is. And that's all been somehow like truncated or, or, or negatively toxic, toxically shaped in some way. Yeah. Those first six years like that, you're loaded for issues coming up in your your 12 year period on yeah and it, and they're, and they're and it, by the and, way that's where it gets tough right yeah middle school and right you know beginning of high school because by the time you're six all those the trust the autonomy the initiative the industry the inferiority all those self-esteem pieces are all set in motion and then if they're not fostered or or somehow uh the vulnerabilities aren't protected and given resiliency the narcissistic set starts in because those are where the injuries are and then they start manifesting themselves and and that's you're meeting you start new people they're the picking up yeah. of like drugs alcohol promiscuity juvenile delinquency depending on the parenting or things like that happen because the narcissistic injuries become so heavy or or then you end up with you know your 25 year old in full-blown you know heroin addiction or pill addiction to you know oxys and Percocet. you're meeting new people you're getting a chance to create new identities right. so you create an identity and you're constantly scared that someone's going to find out what your parents knew, which is you're awful. Right. Yeah. Or what they, what they told you well, which yeah. wasn't true, but well, yeah. they told but it, you that you were. For nothing. most people, that's their reality. Right. Well, yeah. and that's the ego. Yeah. My, my ego is telling me that I'm nothing. Yep. You know, right. What did he say? Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Be careful what I ask for. So, so you get a little self-awareness and you understand some of these mechanisms are you're either dealing with them or you have them yourselves or right. both. Right. How do we start? How do we start? How do we make use of that information? This new awareness. So, so, I mean, like I've said about other things is, you know, getting awareness, do you do an inventory on yourself? Like, see, like, are you, do you feel like that you put yourself down? Do you, I always ask people, are you gaslighting yourself? A lot of people say what's gaslighting, right? Yeah. Are you self-abusive mentally? Are you always like, I suck. I'm no good. Do you ever ask not... anybody what their parents thought of them? Oh yeah, I ask everybody that. Because that's the foundation, isn't it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. What What did your parents think of you? They thought I was an idiot. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, that's a standard question that I ask, and and then we go from there. But I, I remember, uh, I, I remember, I always say this about my kids. There was one thing, you know, you always try to you sometimes say things that your parents tell you. Yes. And I, I was always one thing that I was never going to tell my kids, and it's like my mother used to tell it to me all the time. You spread out like a disease. <laughs> You know, because you're a kid, you're making a mess and you spread out like a disease. And God, that's awful. You know, as an adult, I'm looking back at it, it's an awful thing to say to a kid. Yep. Yeah. I could write a book. Yeah. Yeah. I could write a book, but I won't. Yeah. Well, I will, but I'm see the smile. Yeah. <laughs> you get the smile. And chances are yeah. she got Behind she got glass, that from her parents. Knows. Yeah. What? Chances are she got that from her parents. Right. That's generational as well, probably. Right. But I said, I'm never going to tell that to my kids, you know, say that to my kids. Right. Yeah. Right. And everybody and all parents make mistakes and they say things. Yeah. It's just a matter of how many times do you keep saying the same thing over and over thinking that you're not doing damage. And that's, you know, 
that's one of that's one of the things that I work on, and I think one of the highlights of of my patients that come back over and over always say to me, "Thank you for helping me parent my kids better," yeah, or or help me not damage them as much, or things like that. Even in my classes that I teach, you know, that I have a lot of adult learners in my graduate program that have kids, and they're always like, "Oh my God, I'm going home and changing those 17 things I've ever said," and you know, instead of looking at your kids saying, God, you're, you're yeah. never going to be anything. Why not say you're strong and you're beautiful and, and you're funny? And why not yeah. do that? Because growing up as a kid, you think that's just the way people parent. Right. You don't, Which, you don't, you don't examine it. You just, right. that's the way it was. Right. Yeah. Right. But then at a certain point, hopefully before you have kids or when you're having kids, you really realize, okay, I got to evaluate that a little bit better because that's not the way it's done. I think one of the things before I wrap up the show that I saw, it was, it was a very heartwarming thing I saw the other day. I was out in front of Whole Foods, as a matter of fact, and a little girl, she was probably maybe three and a half, four years old. And, and, and this, and this stuck with me for today that she had fallen and I didn't see the fall, but something had happened and whatever. And the mom was bent down to her level. And I was thinking, you know, she was crying and, and I was, you know, just listening. I was getting stuff from my car, whatever. And, yeah. and the mom, and she's like, I hurt myself. And the mom's like, she's like, repeat after me. And she was like, right at her eye level. She goes, you're strong. And she goes, I'm strong. And she goes, <laughs> and she goes, you're beautiful. She says, I'm beautiful. And she goes, and I'm tough. And she goes, I'm tough. And she goes, you're okay. And she goes, I'm okay. Like, yeah. the, and I was like, oh, perfect. Crushing moment of love. <laughs> I was like, that because you know normally I see parents going, oh my god, you're so stupid, you fell, get in the car, stop crying, right? Don't be dramatic, just get right. up. Don't be narcissistic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, it was such a heartwarming, I wish more parents would, you know, instead of, instead of going like, don't cry, I can't hear you, use your big girl words. Yeah. She just said, repeat after me. Yeah. I was like, you know, I know, you know, it's like the help, you know, the, the whole thing in that movie, but yeah, like, why not say, like, give your, give your kid resiliency. So not narcissism. Anyway, on that fabulous note, y'all. <laughs> I am going to have a wonderful week. I hope you have a wonderful week. We have beautiful weather here today and just in time for our blizzard coming on Friday right. here in Massachusetts. So, um, you know, welcome to February and rolling out into March. But anyway, you guys have a great week. Happy, healthy, and no narcissism and treat people with kindness, love, and compassion. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.